Someone said, and a lot of people have said it, I tried to look up the connotation to give credit, but it, I mean, <laughs> several people have said this. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. We all want to go there, but we don't want the trip to be today. So consequently, what happens? Well, what happens is that most people don't think about heaven, don't think about heaven very much. But perhaps we should because, after all, Mark Twain, our fellow Oklahoman, said, well, you go to heaven for the climate, but you go to hell for the company. But I want you to know for the Christian, heaven is the natural response that when the cross we carry gets heavy. Or when the loved ones that we want to see again, we miss them and we start, we start thinking outside of this world and we start thinking about the promise of our heavenly home. And we think about heaven. But you know, to our earthly minds, heaven, well, it's an abstract concept. It's a realm that's foreign to us. Of course, we accept by faith the reality of this spiritual place, but with only biblical hints, it's difficult to imagine what heaven will actually be like. Galileo, the scientist who lived in the 17th century, he remarked that the intention of the Holy Spirit is not to teach us how heaven goes, but how one goes to heaven. And so the glories of heaven surpass our human abilities to perceive. But I want you to know today, friend, that heaven is a real place. No doubt about it, but yet it's a place that exceeds our imagination. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said that it was so astounding and so unbelievable when he saw what he saw when he was there that it couldn't be told or, or couldn't be explained. It's trying to explain to my little grandchildren, our world, when they have no point of reference to the complexity of the world we live in. And it's similar to John when he saw Jesus in the book of the Revelation, and he said in verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. See, notice those things are not what he saw, but they were comparisons to what he saw. And that's because his human language didn't have the depth, it didn't have the breadth or the scope to fully describe what he was seeing. So he had to say it was like something that we could understand. His words just didn't have the ability to capture the glory of what his eyes were actually seeing. You know, people have said a lot about heaven. Some have said that heaven is paradise restored. See, because of the sin of man, the paradise that God had originally created was lost. What was made to be a place where you could walk and talk with God on a regular basis and continually be in his presence, that paradise became a graveyard because of the sin of man. But you see, friend, by the time we get to the end of the book of, of Revelation, we see paradise restored as God originally intended for it to be. Between Genesis and Revelation, there is a cross that restores paradise. And so heaven, our heavenly home, is paradise restored. And what's so wonderful is that with that restoration, there's going to be some things in heaven that, going, that are going to be missing from the world that we live in now. 
Namely, there'll be no more death, no pain, no sorrow, no sin, no more fear. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So there was no, also there was no more sea. Too bad for you sailors and fishermen. Have to find a new hobby. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he, he set up on the throne, Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, said, Behold, I will make all things new. And what that means, friend, is that the injustices and the, and the deprivations of earthly life will be fully and forever corrected because heaven is paradise restored. In heaven, we will be liberated from every loss. Heaven will be a place where finally the Lord's prayer is completely answered, where God's name is made holy, and His kingdom has come, and His will forever will be done. God is going to heal the corruption, the brutality, the defilement, the suffering of this world. And it's not because there's not going to be marriage in heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't, don't get that mixed up. Heaven is paradise restored. All of the brokenness is going to be restored because we will finally be in heaven. Paradise restored. Well, heaven has also been called a prepared place for a prepared people. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I have gone, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, as you sit here today, perhaps there's some place in your mind that you'd rather be living. Maybe you're a beach person. You love the sand between your toes. Maybe you want it cooler, and you'd like to be up in the mountains. Or if you're like Starla, you wish you could live in a shoe store. There, there are any number of places where one might wish that they lived. But yet, because of your family or your job is here, Oklahoma City is home to you. But in your mind, there's just some other place that you think you would really love to live. But you know what's interesting about that? That there are some people who already live in your so-called paradise that they want to be out of there. They want to be someplace else. So let me give you something to think about. Only those who have embraced Jesus are going to be truly happy living with him for eternity. For those people who haven't been transformed by God, heaven may not seem so inviting or so attractive. Because heaven is a holy place. And it's hardly suitable for those disinterested in God's holiness or his righteousness. And the translation is, if you don't like coming to church on earth, friend, you ain't going to like heaven. Simple as that. And if you struggle to make it here twice a month, how are you going to feel about church every day 24-7? Now, I'm purposely keeping my eyes up. I'm not looking at anybody. Very much. 
The point is that people who don't long to be in the presence of God today aren't going to long to be in His presence for eternity. Because heaven isn't a place where everyone really wants to go to. Now, I know everyone says they do, but their actions give them away. Can someone say busted? Now, the other side of that coin is just as sinners wouldn't feel comfortable in heaven, we believers shouldn't feel completely at ease on this earth. Listen, perhaps you find nothing in this world that satisfies you. Well, if that's the case, perhaps it's because you've been made for another world. This may be the reason you're not happy with everything else in this world is because there was never, that, that was never supposed to be the thing that satisfied your life completely. Perhaps your citizenship is in another world, another place, and the only time you're truly going to be happy is when you finally get home. You know, everyone's all upset and crying about global warming. The world is going to end. What is it, 12 years? Well, when the global warming people come and tell you the world is coming to an end, just tell them it's okay. We can get along without it. We've got a better version coming along. And it is a hope of heaven that gives us a peace in this present world. And with that in mind, let me say, I don't understand when believers, supposed followers of Jesus Christ, freak out because of the economies and wars and rumors of war and pestilence and disease. Now, I know, I realize there are natural disasters happening everywhere. I know there are wars. I know there are diseases. I know the economy is like a yo-yo. It's up and down on the brink. But I also know that Jesus said right before he comes to take me home, I was going to be able to read the news in my Bible almost word for word. My Savior said that these were going to be the signs of his soon return. Now, I am truly, truly sorry for people's loss. I feel horrible about the pain and suffering they have to endure. But with all the bad news, I realize that we have to face some of these things. But I want you to know I am excited that we're finally going to get to go where we really want to go. Listen, friend, this is not the land of the living going to the dying. This is the land of the dying headed to the land of the living. And so if you're one of those that are pessimistic about this world or you're worried about what's going to happen, perhaps in light of all of that uncertainty, you need to get reacquainted with God's promise of heaven. It's not a hope so religion. I'm not talking about Adistra or Stephen King novel. novel. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the creator of it all, who said, I have gone to prepare a place for you, and if it were not so, I would have told you. This is reality, friend. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it keep you up at night. If anything at all gives you peace in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, it should be hope in heaven. Because I want you to know heaven is a real place. It's not mystical beings floating on clouds with harps. It's terra firma. Heaven is more solid, more real than life is on this earth. Heaven is more real than you and I in this building right now. And for the Christian, heaven is our final destination. Hallelujah. Revelation 19 describes a, heaven as a banquet for a wedding feast. And Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. 
And as born-again believers in Jesus, we will be purified, prepared, and rejoicing for when we meet our Savior. Heaven is a place of restoration. It's a place of fellowship and reunion. I can't wait to see my parents again. And I know there are people over there that you want to see again. But the real reason I really want to go and the greatest reward for making it to heaven is to be able to see the creator of it all, almighty God, and then to bow and spend time with our Lord and Savior who died for our sins, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now that doesn't mean that heaven is just a long nap. We're not going to turn into Rip Van Winkle. What it means is that we live restless lives on this earth and our lives are filled with anxiety and worry about our yesterdays and our right nows and our tomorrows. But when we get to heaven, we're going to be at rest in our soul. We will finally be in his presence where God created us to be when we are created in the Garden of Eden. 1 John 3.19 says we set our hearts at rest in his presence. For those of us who have been transformed through faith in Christ with our names written in the Lamb's book of life, heaven is a real place. But the question that always comes up when you start talking about heaven is, well, who's going to go there? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you listen to the media and even some preachers, everyone is going. One great big party. I don't know about you, but I haven't been to a funeral in a long time where so-and-so didn't make it. Everyone, whether famous or not, people say about them, well, at least we'll get to see them again. But friend, the reality is, sadly, not everyone at every funeral makes it. There's a universalist theology that says everyone is going to heaven. And how many times have we heard all roads lead to heaven? But I want you to know today the question is not what does society teach. The question certainly isn't what does Oprah say. But the question today is what does the Bible teach? And Jesus has a pretty politically incorrect discussion about it. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The path that leads to, destruct, to destruction is described as a wide gate and a broad path. It's a well-traveled road, a road paved with all of those good intentions that everyone talks about. And it seems normal and it seems pleasant. But yet according to Jesus Christ, it ends up in eternal destruction. And in contrast, Jesus said there's a narrow gate, a narrow road that leads to eternal life. It's a road of blessings, but it's not an easy road. Now, the fact that there's a highway to hell, but only a stairway to heaven, says a lot about the anticipated traffic numbers. I'm just saying. 
Jesus says, not every road leads to God. Not every road leads to heaven. Not my words, but his. And so many times you find people say, oh, we love Jesus because he was a great moral rabbi and, and he had a lot of good teaching that we need to follow. But friend, I'm here, you to here to tell you today that that same great moral rabbi also told us that there is only one way to live that leads to everlasting life and any other way leads to eternal destruction. Most of you have probably seen this. It's so popular in this day that, that our spiritual life is pictured as people on a mountain. And on this mountain, you have all of these paths that travel upward. At the top of the mountain is God and heaven. You have Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam, all going on these different paths, following up to get to the top. And in modern theology, they're all ultimately going to make their way up to God. They've just chosen a different way to get there. I mean, doesn't that just sound so wonderful and so great and so good and just so full of human logic and humanism? But put your thinking cap on with me for a second. If you follow that to the logical conclusion, what about Satanism? It's a religion. Along with all the other pagan religions in the world. So, these religions must also be an equally valid way of approaching God if every road leads to heaven. Church, listen to me. If man can't make a distinction between truth and error when it comes to religion, we have no choice but to conclude that all religions, including the ones that practice things that are repulsive and immoral, are avenues to God. In other words, it makes no difference which road we take and our spiritual beliefs end up being no more significant than Baskin's 31 flavors of ice cream. It's just a personal choice. Well, then universalism has another major problem. For all people to ultimately end up in heaven, well, that means that God would have to force some people to be there. See, the Bible teaches that God has given us a free choice, that we have a free will. And He has given us a freedom to run from His love and to reject His offer of eternal life, just like He's given us the choice to run to Him. Now, of course, He's a sovereign God. He could have chosen to make everyone worship Him. But what's the fun in that? He wanted worship from those who want to worship Him. So if everyone ultimately ends up in heaven, God has to overpower people's will and force them to be with him even though they choose not to follow him. And let's face it. If everyone ends up in heaven, including the people who don't want to be there, well, then heaven really isn't going to be any different than here on earth. Makes sense to me. All roads lead to heaven denies humanity the right to say no to God. Listen, the clear teaching of Jesus is contrary to the universal theology that has embedded itself in our culture. And as Jesus warns us, the broad road doesn't lead to heaven at all. It leads to a more disastrous destination a little further south. And I'm not talking about Texas. 
So the answer to the question of who's going to wind up in heaven or is everyone going to make it, the answer to that question according to Jesus Christ is no. Sadly, not everyone is going to end up getting into heaven. Well, the next question is, so if everyone's not going to get in, I mean, so if, if not everyone gets in, then what are the entrance requirements? Well, again, society permeates trying to spread its answer to that question by thinking that it's by our own merits, that it's by our own works, it's if we're a good guy or not. Well, if it's based on being a good soul, then that means all the dogs would get into heaven. There's nothing better than a good old dog. But many people think it's by a point system. Like the guy who showed up at heaven trying to get in, and Peter said, well, we go by the point system up here, and it takes 100 points to get in. Guy says, okay. Well, uh, I was always faithful to my wife. Peter says, well, that's three points. The guy says, well, I never miss church. I always put something in the plate. Peter said, good, that's two points. And the guy scratched and said, well, um, I donated goods to help the poor. I, I, I worked at a soup kitchen. Peter said, oh, that's very good. That's four points. So exasperated, the guy cries out, at this rate, the only way I'm ever going to get in is by the grace of God. Peter says, yeah, that's 100 points. Come right in. Anytime there's a conversation about getting into heaven on the human level, it automatically goes to merit or to your good works. And the reason is that every other religion in the world outside of Christianity presents its own unique method of gaining merit to try to earn way into heavenly bliss. Buddhism's eightfold path to nirvana. Islam's four pillars. Hinduism's cycle of reincarnation and karma. So I was a great dung beetle, so I get to come back as a maggot. I'm excited. Every world religion presents a do-it-yourself way to gain points to get into the afterlife. But I want you to know today, friend, the Bible paints a very unflattering picture of our own merits. Matter of fact, the reason the scripture is called a stumbling block and an, and an offense to us is because every other religion says, hey, listen, if you follow these steps just right, you can get in. But the Bible is offensive to the carnal mind because it says you cannot do this on your own no matter how hard you try. This bothers people. who are used to pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and rising up from the ashes. I want you to know Isaiah 64, 6 says we are all, all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That includes you, that includes me, that includes Billy Graham, that includes Mother Teresa. In other words, even on my holiest day, when I've nailed every one of the Ten Commandments and I've obeyed my wife, I am still standing for God as a spiritual peasant because of the sinful garments that I wear. The best we have to offer is woefully inadequate. And the reason is, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
But I want you to know the good news is the Bible does offer us a way into heaven. As lost and wayward people, we have Jesus Christ, our mediator, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for me, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The only person who doesn't stand before God in filthy, unclean rags is Jesus. He never sinned, but yet he became sin on our behalf. Church, God took my sin, my shame, my failures and put them on Jesus. And God took the righteousness of Jesus and put them on me. I'm going to heaven not because I'm good enough or I'm smart enough or I'm cute enough, but simply because I have the best attorney and Jesus is standing on my behalf in the courtroom of heaven. And my accuser, Satan, has a list of all my failures he got from my sister, and he is right. I did it. I'm guilty. I did them all. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands up and objects because his righteousness has been exchanged for my record of sin. My filthy rags of sin have been expunged and replaced with his robe of righteousness. And the Father God doesn't see me in my sin. He sees me in the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. Mm. That's why the scriptures say we are now justified, we are now acquitted, we are now pardoned, we are now redeemed from our sin. Not because I never committed any, not because you never committed any, but because God looks at us through his son Jesus who exchanged our sins for his righteousness. Mm. So I'm not seen as who I was, but who I've become through the grace of Almighty God. Romans 5 1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through Jesus. Being right is not by my own merit, but God uses my faith in Christ to make me right with Him. But you see, folks, you've got to understand we have to surrender. We have to turn everything over to him. Just like the kid who reaches into the narrow neck cookie jar, as long as he continues to hold on to the cookies, he's not getting any cookies, is he? Well, in the same way, we're clinging to our filthy rags, our own merit and our own goodness, our own good works, trying to make a case as to why we deserve the right to get into heaven. But the only way we're going to get our hand out of the cookie jar is to let go and completely surrender to God. And we cannot do it on our own. And that's why we need Jesus. So who's going to make it? Well, I want you to know it's the will of God for everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But because God gives us a choice, sadly, the will of God is not always done. Now, I want you to know Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Only Jesus has the power to save. And his name is the only one in all the world that can save anyone. Buddha may have been enlightening. Muhammad may have inspired millions. Moses might have led a nation out of slavery. 
But I want you to know, friend, the names Buddha, Muhammad, and Moses cannot save anyone. But God loves everyone, but salvation only comes through Christ alone. And it is by the grace of Jesus that we are able to be saved. By his name. Well, we're well into football season. Well, there's one fan. Probably wasn't an OSU fan. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry they lost. I was rooting for them yesterday. No, I promise. There's no, no. I like all the Oklahoma schools to do good. But there's a real famous <clears throat> football story that maybe you've heard before. There's a guy named Roy Regals. And Roy played for the University of California. And back in 1929, uh, he went to the University of California. And back in 1929, University of California played Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl. Well, in the first half, Tech fumbles the ball, and Roy scoops it up and takes off running. And he's running over 60 yards, and, and as you can imagine, there's got to be a hook to this story. Or I wouldn't be telling it to you. Well, he's running the wrong way. Running for his own goal line. And so he runs over 60 yards, and, and one of his own teammates has to tackle him before he gets across the goal line. <laughs> did, has, did any of you remember that show? Um, I, I think it's called What's My Line, where you tried to guess people's personality. I mean, guess th who they were. Roy was so famous, his story was so famous, he even made it on that show. But what I want to share with you today is that there are a lot of people like Roy Regals. People that ran so hard, so fast, so long, but yet they found out when they got to the end that they had been running in the wrong direction. Now, some of us haven't been running the wrong way for 60 yards. We've been running the wrong way for 60 years. Some of us may have only been running the wrong way for six months. But we've picked up the ball running to get into heaven, but, but we've been running on our own merits. We've been running on our own strength. But ladies and gentlemen, I want you to realize you, you can't do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. All roads are not going to get you there. Well, at halftime, the rest of Roy's team was huddled around the coach while Roy, as you can imagine, was over in the corner. His head buried in his hands and tears rolling down his face. But yet when it was time for the second half to start, the coach said, men, I want the same team who started the first half to start the second half, and that includes you, Roy. That includes you. And friend, you may be here today and you feel like you've spent too many years running in the wrong direction. You feel like there's no hope. You feel like it's too late to receive the gift that Jesus offers and to turn and go into a new direction. Well, that day back in 1929, Coach Price said, I want you in the game, Roy. The coach gave Roy Regals another chance. And I wish I could tell you that, that the University of California had an amazing comeback and they won the game, but that's not the case. Georgia Tech won the football game because of Roy's mistake. 
But those who played against Roy that day will tell you they've never seen a guy play football with so much passion as Roy did in the second half of that Rose Bowl. And my point is that some of the greatest miracles I've ever seen have come from people who ran as hard and as fast as they could in the wrong direction. They poured passion into their sin, passion into their rebellion against God, but yet when they finally met the grace of God, those same people were revolutionized and they realized even being guilty of the most heinous sins that when they finally realized Jesus had grace for them, they change their life forever. And such were some of us. And such were some of us. And perhaps such are some of you today. But I want you to know Jesus says, I will give you my righteousness. And I will take your sin. Friends, it doesn't matter about your past. It really doesn't. I understand that your future is determined by what happened in your past to a certain extent. But it doesn't matter to Jesus. What matters is from this moment forward. And if we have breath in our bodies, we have another chance to accept God's grace. And if you're here today, you're a non-believer, or you're a prodigal that's walked away from God, Jesus is offering you the path to eternal life. But you have to understand all roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one road. And it's the only through the only man who ever lived a perfect life. And that's the reason he can say, give me your sinful rags and I'll wear them for you. And I will take on me what I don't deserve in order to give you what you don't deserve. And that's eternal life.